You know, as men, there's so many parts of who we are that, um, that God sets the pattern for. Let me give you an example. For instance, one of the most radical things ever said in the New Testament was when Jesus said, pray after this manner, our Father. That was so radical because, you know, the, 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 the Jewish people had this, the, the, the odor of smoking Sinai in their hearts. Don't come near the mountain lest ye die. And now suddenly, after 400 years of silence, the shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the uh, angel of the Lord came upon them, the glory of the Lord shone, shone round about them, and they were what? Sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, two words, fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. So God came to us because we could not come to him. And then all those years later, for some reason, the prayer life of Jesus so moved these men. They didn't say, teach me how to do a miracle. Could you teach me to teach? Could you teach me to preach? No. They said, would you teach us to pray? And he said, this is how you pray, our Father. You see the list. You go into a bookstore, you see the list, and it's got Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Sid Canoe, Jehovah Shalom, you know, Jehovah Sabaoth. You've got all these names of God. You know what I, I tell my people? I said, look, I, I, I know all that. I'm thankful for all that, and I understand how he applied in different areas. But all you have to do is have one name on one sign, Father. Amen. Because the Father is all of that. Amen. He is the protector. He is the provider. He is the one that, that ministers to us. And then, and then his husbands... You know, when you're married, you, you, you have a bride, where's the pattern? Well, the pattern is we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. There's another radical statement. Love? Yeah, I love. I love me. You know? I love me. And, and we're selfish by nature. You say, preacher, I don't believe that. Go look in your garage. Okay? Now, my four-wheeler was to provide meat for the family. And, and uh, you know, that's why I bought mine was for that reason. And, amen, my motorcycle's there so that I can take my wife to the grocery store when she wants to ride on a motorcycle. So, yeah, <laughs> I, got, I got saddlebags. Don't meddle with my preaching, okay? So. No, it's true. It, it's true, isn't it? it it's, um, uh, yeah, so, so the idea that they were to, to love their wife, there's a long story about the church at Ephesus there. There was a lot of gender strife going on. The goddess Diana was there, and, and, and uh, actually some of the civil government had been taken over by women. It was a, it was a, it was a great conflict. But, he, but God says to them, love her. You know, you love her. You're to love her. That's, that's a, that was a radical thought. And then even as children, even as children, I know what it is to have kids that... that um, that walk away for a while, I'm glad, I'm glad for God's mercy, but that walk away from, for a while from things that you've taught them. And so as a child and a father, you learn things in that relationship. During that time, I literally immersed myself in the story of the prodigal father. You know, the, 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 the prodigal son, but, but in many ways it was the it was the father and the relationship of the father to the child that, that, that is one of the central themes of that story. And so God gives us, as men, God gives us the pattern for every area and every aspect of our life. And I'm so glad for that. I, what am I saying? I'm just saying it's a privilege to be a man. It really is. In a day when we are ridiculed and, and our positions are scoffed at, you know, it's a, it's a privilege to be placed in this position of leadership it's not a burden it's not a burden to love your wife it's not a burden to be a dad it's not a burden to be you know a son it's those are those are blessings that God gives us i want you to open your bibles and go to the book of second samuel chapter 18 in a lot of men's retreats you're not going to get certain you're not going to get certain uh types of um study helps okay you, you you just go you get basic stuff and then you go home uh, but this is not your normal meeting so i'm going to give you some uh, a 
a lesson of Bible study that has nothing to do with my message. This is just something for you to take home, store away in your mind, and I'm sure that you'll use it all the time. Listen to this. It's a law of Bible study. Second Samuel always comes after First Samuel. Okay? It's always Second Peter. If, if, if you find Second Peter, you know First Peter's right before it. Okay, have you got that? All right, good. That's, that's a help. And uh, it's just, you, I can see light bulbs turning on there, and you're like, dude, this is good. This is good. No wonder I came to men's retreat. If I got nothing else, that is worth it, you know. Of course, we could be McCracken and say to Samuel. What is he smoking? Anyhow, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. He's my buddy. We went to college together. One day I'm going to preach when he's there, and I'm going to do that just to, you know, just to steal that little niche from my old friend. All right, let's go. Second Samuel chapter 18, verse 24. And David sat between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate unto the wall and lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man running alone. And the watchman cried and told the king, and the king said, If he be alone, the, there is tidings in his mouth. And he came apace and drew near. And the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called unto the porter and said, Behold, another man running alone. And the king said, He also bringeth tidings. And the watchman said, Methinketh the running of the foremost is like the running of Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He's a good man. And cometh with good tidings. And Himeas called and said unto the king, All is well. And he fell down to the earth upon his face before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord thy God, which hath delivered up the men that lifted up their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? Let me stop. He didn't give a flip about his army about his generals, about the victory, about any of that. The one thing on his heart was his boy. Is the young man safe? Not did we win, how many men did we lose, what have we captured, what have we regained? One simple question, how is my boy? And Ahimeaz answered when Joab sent the king's servant and me thy servant, I saw a great tumult, but I knew not what it was. And the king said unto him, Turn aside and stand here. And he turned aside and stood still. And behold, Cushai came, and Cushai said, Tidings, my lord the king, for the Lord hath avenged thee this day of all them that rose up against thee. And the king said unto Cushai, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Cushai answered, The enemies of my lord the king And all that rise against thee to do thee hurt, be as that young man is. And the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. Father, help us. We need help. We know we need help. We admit we need help. We confess it openly. We we are needful people, needful men. God, I pray that today in this session that you would take your word and move us. Don't Don't let us stay settled in a comfort zone. Help us, dear God, I pray, to to be touched and transformed by your dear Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Now the story that we read here today is a tragic one. David, the king, was a mighty warrior. Often he had experienced the thrill of victory and rarely had he ever suffered the agony of defeat. And after a victory over a wild Bedouin tribe, he took the the, the tribal king's daughter to be his wife and together They had a son, and they called his name Absalom. It's significant that the name Absalom means the father of peace. David had dreams for this boy. David had had hopes for this boy. He would be the one 
that would bring to the nation of Israel the greatest peace that Israel had ever known, and that was beating and pulsating in the heart of the father as he held that young boy in those early days. Absalom grew up to be the most popular of all of David's uh, children at the time, and I, I can picture in those early days as as um, Absalom would ask his dad, like every kid would do, Dad, would you tell me again about when you fought the lion? Dad, could you tell me again about when you killed the bear? Dad, Dad, tell me again about Goliath. And and he would hear uh, songs on the street and rumors on the street and perhaps caricatures on a wall where somebody had painted a picture of his dad uh, facing the the champion of the Philistines. And I want to just tell you, it was... It was something, listen, Absalom, Absalom was the proud son of a, of a living legend. His dad was a living legend. But as the kingdom grew, as the boy grew, the kingdom grew. And as the kingdom grew, those things tend to pull us apart. Now, guys, listen to me carefully. If you're not careful in the ever-changing, wait a minute, always changing, it, 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 life always changes. And in the ever-changing times of your life, what's going to happen if you're not careful is, is um, you're going to get to the place to, to where it begins to pull you from priorities in your life. Let me tell you what you have to always do. You have to always be reprioritizing your life. It's like a tune-up on a car. It doesn't last forever. There are times where you have to stop. We used to have family meetings where we would get together, and I'd say, okay, everybody, we got a family meeting tonight, and we'd all get in there, Susie and me and the children, and we would talk about where we were at, what our priorities were, and where we needed to adjust to get things maybe back on track a little bit, and we always continually have to, have to do that. And as more and more uh, things and people began to demand the king's attention, priorities became misplaced and you don't have to be a bible scholar to realize as you read as you read the account of David's life that David was a great king but David didn't place a lot of priority on the family that becomes extremely obvious because responsibilities and things began to pull him away and down deep inside this boy that at one time idolized his father or rebellious spirit developed and there came a time when he stole from his dad the very thing that had stolen his dad from him, the kingdom. So he took the kingdom from his father. David fled to the mountains and after a period of regrouping there was a battle that took place. It was David's army against Absalom. It was father against son. What a tragic place to be, father against son. And David won. And so all about him now is a victory party that has broken out. I mean, the people that are there are celebrating. They mapped this. They planned this. They worked this. They, they finally now have back the thing that was stolen from them. And so a party erupts all around him when the news of the victory comes. But suddenly in David's life, winning wasn't everything. Winning wasn't everything. He wasn't worried about position. He wasn't worried about the palace. He wasn't worried about the possessions that he left behind. He simply wanted to know how his boy was. And every messenger that came is the young man, is the young man say. Finally, news comes from the fleet-footed Cushai. Not only has the enemy been routed, but the king's son was dead. Now listen to me carefully. David the king had won. But David the father had lost. And there's so many areas in our life as men, if we're not careful, we can be very victorious in. And yet in the most important areas of our life, we suffer defeat. Have you ever noticed in the Bible where it said uh, that, that, and I'm paraphrasing because it's said in several different areas, but, 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 but it says that a, a foolish son, a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. A foolish son is, is basically a blight on his mother's heart. Well, where's the dad? Why does it say the dad? And, and, and I know there are definitely exceptions to this, but if we're not spiritual, what we have a tendency to do is compartmentalize our failures. 
we have a file for failures, and we just, well, I'm a success on the job. I'm good at golf. You know, my handicap at golf is incredible. You know, I hunt. You know, we've got all these areas that we're really good in, what we kill, but, but we're struggling at home. We're struggling as a husband, struggling as, as, a, uh, as a dad. And so what we do in those areas, because we're awkward and don't know how to handle them, we just pull out file 13, we slip those in there, close them up, and we smile while the wife is sitting in a corner weeping over what she considers the heaviness of her heart. You see. So, so here's David the father. And, and the news pierces his heart like an arrow. And he turned his back on the victory party that was actually thrown in, in his honor to, to a degree and celebrating the one thing that he thought he wanted most. And he ascends the stairway to his room. Now I want you to get this picture. Because that man that climbs those stairs leading away from the party into a place of solitude, that's not a king. That's a father. That's a dad. And here is, here is his voice. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, this did not begin here. Okay, this, 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 this is not the beginning of a tragic story. This is, this is one of the final scenes of a tragic story between a father and a son, and now the father, the father goes to his room weeping and crying while the son's body hangs from a battlefield tree with a dart thrust through him. And, and, and there, there's no opportunity to reverse those things. But I get the sense as David walks to his room, listen to his words, as he walks to his room, what David is doing, he's not just looking at the moment, David is looking at the past and the things he should have done and the things that he could have done and he wishes he could go back and reverse it all and he says this, would God I had. Regrets about the family. Now here's how we're going to end our life. One or two ways. You're either going to live a would God I had life or a thank God I did life. One of those two. There's no middle ground. The, 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 the theme of your life will be would God I had or thank God I did. And the choice literally is left up to us. And, and we, have, we have that opportunity to do just right. And I, I want to just tell you, that, that, that we have such a vital, li- listen, thank God, how many pastors, let me see your hands, all the pastors in here. Well, you know, you know, you know what a pastor has? A pastor has three areas, I think, in my opinion, of, of major uh, ministry. He has, he has his family, he has his church, and he has his staff. And man, I love, I love staff relationships. God sends me my staff because God wants me to help develop them and prepare them for whatever he's got for them, and they're a blessing to me. I, I love staff relationships. Amen. I love my church. One of the greatest honors of my entire life is that God plucked me out of Georgia, transformed me all the way over to Idaho, and gave me a group of people. Most of those people have been saved under our ministry. I'm thankful for that. Amen. Man, I'm, I'm so glad for that. It's the greatest honor of my life. But I can't get so wrapped up in all these other responsibilities to forget my ministry to the family. And I want to tell you this. Every one of you men here, you're a minister. Now, you may not have a Sunday school class or a bus route. You may not be a song leader. You may may not have that type of what we call the the ministry, but you have ministry, and it begins first at home. And by the way, for every pastor, and I know you know this, I'm not speaking down to you, I'm just saying this for the benefit of all of us here, for every single one of us who pastor a church, our number one priority and our number one ministry begins in the home. You see, if a man is, if, if a man is the hero at church, but the villain at home... He really has no true ministry, none whatsoever. If he's not real at home, if, if he's not at home, what he, what he preaches at church, 
then everything he's doing is basically a facade. Now, I want to talk with you about David the father, and I want to talk with you about having regrets about the family. First of all, first of all, I think that David regretted that he did not value family relationships as he should. He did not value the family relationship that God had given him. Remember now, he calls Sol- he, he calls um, uh, Absalom, he calls him the father of peace. And so I think there's, it's very obvious that David the father had high hopes for his son early on. And yet, uh, and yet da- listen, listen, David the king yielded to the tyranny of the urgent. Have, you ever, have, have any of you ever read that little, it's a, little, it's a great, here, here's, here's, let me give it to you just in a nutshell. The nutshell is this. It's called the tyranny of the urgent. You can buy it. Small little deal. It, it's this. It's that, it's that the good things outscream the bad things. I mean, I mean the best things. So, so the squeaky wheel, you know what I'm talking about? It, it gets the grease. And so what happens is, is the best things in life linger over in the shadows and waiting on your attention while all the loud and noisy things call our name and scream for our attention. And so what do we do? We, take care, we spend our life taking care of the urgent things when in reality we leave the best things undone. And so David now, there's a lot of noise about him in his administration. And there's so many things calling for him. Look, you've got the job. You, 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 you've got things. Here, one of our problems is, is we, become, we become codependent. We actually, need to, we actually need people to be dependent upon them because we're dependent upon their dependency. You ever met somebody like that? That ran their self ragged, that ignored their family, ignored their relationship, ignored their ignored their wife or their husband or their children, ignored it all because they were simply uh, absolutely addicted to somebody else needing them. Yeah. The tyranny, the tyranny of the urgent is a very it's a very unhealthy way to live. And so father and son drifted apart, and and the neglected son became resentful uh, uh, of uh, of the father. He, he developed into a resentful man. And it escalated to a place to where they weren't even on speaking terms. Let me tell you this. Listen to me. Listen to me. The spirit of our God. Bob Jones Sr. used to say, duties never conflict. Now, they can butt heads at times, but the reality of the matter, if you'll spend time in prayer about it, God will clearly show you what priority you need to place where. And listen to me, the Spirit of God will never, the Spirit of God will never, emphasis on never, He will never he will never call you to sacrifice your family on the altar of success or, or whatever it may be. Amen. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. I know men in the ministry that have built what was considered great works and, 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 and everybody oozing and ahs over them, but they neglected their marriage, they neglected their family. That is not of the Spirit of God. I think sometimes we're more interested in machinery than we are ministry. Well, if, I, if I'm operating a ministry, I've got to, I've got to minister to my own family. And my ministry allows me to do that. Can I say something to you men here? Listen to me. All of you men, I'm not talking to the pastors now. I want the pastors right now while I talk to memorize scripture and say Hail Mary four times. Now look at me. Listen to me. I want all you men to listen to me. You, you ought to make sure, first of all, you ought to thank God for your pastor. Second of all, you ought to make sure your pastor has downtime. Don't quote me on this, please. Downtime is not spiritual leadership conference. That's uptime. That's uptime. Downtime is when it's, it's, it's a family getting together, chilling out, loving each other, immersing each other in each other's presence. I, I'm telling you, we have, we have got, you've got to take care of, of the man of God that God has given you, you ought to see to it that he has downtime. You ought to insist that he goes on family vacation, and you ought to pay him. Amen. Not just pay him while he's there. Give him, give him enough that he can go. All of my staff, when they come, first thing I do is say this. Now, here's a requirement for you. There's other requirements. Here's a requirement. You're going to take, take at least two weeks vacation. You're taking two weeks vacation, and you're going to be paid not only while you're on vacation, but we're giving you vacation money to go with, to take your kids, to have a time with. It's a requirement. Amen. And, and, and we, we've, we've got to get to the place to where we realize that there's nothing godly about burning out. Amen. 
Where did we get that? Well, I know where we got it. But anyhow, I mean, it's from the generation before us. There's nothing godly about, about, uh, about burning out. Listen, there's nothing godly about um, abusing the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. Well, I'm so worn out, I never sleep. Why? No, I know you're busy, but come on, you've got to prioritize some things. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. That's a priority. Uh, train up the child in the way she should go. That's a priority. Children, love your... That's, these are all priorities that, that, that God gives us. And yet so many times I, I, I've, I hear when I sit down to counsel couples, one of the things they say to me is basically this, whatever happened to love after marriage? In reality, love should be, love should be, love should be exploding after marriage. Divorce, divorce comes from a Latin word that means to go your separate ways. You know you can have a marriage certificate on your wall and yet be divorced in the area of finances, intimacy, child-rearing. Well, you can be together in one and divorced in another. You can actually be in agreement in this one and yet being separate in the other, going in separate directions in the other one. You can agree in five, disagree in one, and lose your marriage. Our job's to protect as men, that's, by the way, <laughs> that's more than having a concealed carry. You're not doing that to protect your wife. You're doing that to look bad, okay? That's the wild bill coming out in us, begging for someone to confront you until it happens. Then you throw your gun at them and run. But anyhow, <laughs> protection, you, you, you know it for me? Can I just, let me be transparent. You, you know what I learned early in my ministry? Pr- protection for me and my wife, to a certain degree, was protecting her from the expectations of others. Sometimes I have to say, no, no, you didn't hire her, you hired me. And because, because a lot of times... If a pastor and his wife will do it, everybody will let them do it. And you wind up running ministries all by yourself, and it's really your, it's the Herring family. It's like the Von Trapp family singers. It's the Herring family. We don't sing, trust me, okay? Pastors have us come in and sing if they want to purge the church, and they've got a group that's causing trouble. Would you all sing a song for us? And they run out the back door, but anyhow. And so we have to provide, we have to, we, we have to protect and, and I want to tell you there's a division of labor. Uh, and, and let, me, let me tell you the division of labor. Here it is. And just let me make it simple. We cannot do what God can do, and God will not do what we can do. I, I can't do what God can do. It's a division of labor. That principle is seen clearly throughout the Scriptures. I cannot do what God can do. Only God can do that. But God will not do what I can do. And so there's areas in my life uh, as, as a husband, as, as, a, as a father, that I have to fulfill my responsibility. And one of the tragedies is that, that, that God leaves it up to me to value the relationships in my life that God has given me. I am to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Let me say this. i got to go, but let me say this real quick. Listen to me. Did you ever notice that God gives us the, the more difficult assignment Ephesians chapter 5, he says to the man, husband, love the wife. (laughs) No. I don't want to love her. I want to take her for granted. I want to use her. And I want to love me. Okay? Let's go look at a new boat. Okay? I love me. It's easy for me to love me. Okay? But it's hard for me to love her. That's the difficult assignment is for me to love somebody other than myself. He gave me the difficult assignment. Now, you, you notice something about little girls? You put them out in the backyard, and you know what they're running around? They're running around holding a, they got a doll, you know. Now, my, grand, my granddaughter, a lot of time I hold them by the hair or by the leg or something. It's sort of a cavewoman-type mentality, but <laughs> they get that from their in-law side of the family. And, wow. and, but, but, but you know what she does? She, she automatically nurtures and loves Put a guy out in the backyard, he's got a stick running around shooting people. You know, what, you know what happened at Gettysburg? At Gettysburg, a group of men lined up across the field and looked at a copse of trees where General B- 
Buford and his boys in blue were lining there. Listen, they took the high ground because Jackson had been killed at Gettys uh, at Chancellorsville, and they were they were there ready to shred anyone that charged the high ground. And and and, and so uh, uh, here uh, here is Armistead and his men down below. And and he turns to Colonel Fremont from England, and he says to them, Sir, when you go home, you tell them that all of Virginia was here this day. And when the signal was given, what's called picket's charge, grown men charged across an open field as canister shot and grape shot shredded them. They fell in a field and bled to death, calling their mother's name. They did it all. They died because somebody gave them an order. Submit. And I know there are exceptions, but men have within them that inherent wiring to submit to authority. Women are like, I submit. Me submit to him? Pastor, do you know what he's like? Okay. So the harder assignment, man love, woman submit. He gave us the harder assignment. And yet... For us, we're to love as Jesus loved the church. By the way, by the way, you'll spend the rest of your life striving to do that. Next time you get mad and you get bitter and you get angry and you, you forget, boy, I'm going to say something I probably shouldn't say. Would you forgive me before I say it, Pastor? You may... this, is, this is really not good, but, I, but it's so true. You, you know what one of our problems is? One of our problems is... We want our wife to have the body of a woman and the mind of a man. That's a little perverted. We want her to be shapely and sexy, and yet we want her to respond to us as we would respond. She's not, you can't get that. Now, they're trying to create that nowadays. We'll get off that quickly. They are feminizing men and anyhow, you know the story. But the reality of the matter is she comes, she comes as a package. You get her softness, you get her beauty, you get her shapeliness, and you also get, you also get um, a different wiring system in her. One of our problems is this. We don't, we don't value relationships enough to learn how to communicate. Gary Chapman wrote a book called uh, uh, The Five Love Languages, and, and, and I think there may be more than that, uh, but, but, but he, he gave some basic categories. But I sat with a couple that had been married for years, and, I, and I'm, they're having problems. Like, what in the world? And, and, and they're, 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 I mean, they're just hacking each other up, and I'm, I'm listening to her, I'm listening to him, listening to her, listening to him, listening to him, listening to him, listening to her, and they're going back and forth, and all of a sudden it was like... It's like a light turned on. And I looked at him and I said, I, I've got it. This, I understand it. You're sitting there and you're saying, Jevoltenheimer, Don Dusen Dorsum, Der Wiener Schnitzel. <laughs> She's sitting there saying, Parlez-vous français? Je vais très bien, merci à toi. And you're staring at each other like, what? You don't love each other enough to learn each other's love language. I could call somebody up here to talk all day in German, and you'd be just staring like, <laughs> what are you saying? You know? I could have somebody come speak in French, and people would say, it's, that, that, sounds, that sounds perfumey, but I, I don't know what you're talking. I, I don't know what you're saying. And, and we're married for 25 years, and we haven't learned what means I love you to the person we're spending our life with. Well, I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm to tell you I love you like I want to hear it. Well, that does no good. She doesn't speak your language. If you love her, learn her language. You know what you ought to do? Here's an assignment. Go home, sit down with your wife, and say, I want you to tell me what your love language is. And then I want you to tell me what you think my love language is. And figure out what's going on, why you're not communicating. If you will say, I love you, it, look, it may be, it may be she, she may be a, a, an embracer, you know? It may, be, it may be evident expressions. It could just be doing things around the house. It, you, you know, a lot of it is it's spending time together. 
Could we have a date night? We used to have a date night. We used to communicate. Whatever, find out what means to her, I love you. It could be flowers. Find out how you say I love you in her language and start saying it every single day. Amen. All the time. All the time. All the time. Don't take it for granted. All the time. Be saying that. Quickly, number two, he, he regretted that he, that he didn't think less of, less of himself. Less of himself. Boy, I want to tell you, man alive. There was a conflict between two people. You say, yeah, David and Absalom. No, 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 no. No, there was a, there, there was a conflict between David the king and David the father. Yeah. That, that was the greatest conflict in this entire story because for five long years, David and Absalom were strange. Remember, David, you, you, you know the story how Absalom came back and David sent him to his house for two years. It was, it was, the whole thing was a mess. David the, fa- David the king was more concerned with his reputation than, than David the father was that, that he had scandal in his own family. The rape of Tamar by Amnon? Are you kidding me? You get mad at Absalom if you want to, but I'm going to be real honest with you. I identify with Absalom. I grew up in a family, uh, I was talking with Ralph about it. I grew up in a family where somebody messed with my sister, my dad would say, you go and deal with it. We're in a Christian school, and a kid messes with my my middle daughter, and I told my son Jason, I said, son, don't come home. Don't you come home unless you deal with that. Nobody treats your sister that way. Put her head down on the desk and mashed her head into it. I said, you go, you deal with it. So he went to school in the middle of the field before class. He calls the guy out and punches him. Oh, my goodness. Well, anyhow, man, you'd have thought World War II had started. So the principal called me and said, your son just punched somebody. I said, Excellent. Excellent. And I had to go down to the school and say, you're going to give somebody a paddle and I'll bend over. You can paddle me and have at it. But you're not going to touch that boy. You can kick him out of school if you want to. But, but that's, you know, that, that's, that's just, I understand Absalom, in other words. You raped my sister? Really? No, no. But Absalom, Absalom had, the, had the intelligence to look to his dad. But his dad was gutless when it came. No, no. David, David... David could face a giant, but he couldn't face his family. And so rather than doing the right thing, David, David you know, who could inspire an, uh, 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 an army and command the kingdom, but he couldn't lead his family. And so he, he let it go. I'll just tell you this, he had a royalty complex. He was more concerned with his kingdom than he was his family. And I don't know what your kingdom is. I don't know if you've got all your eggs in the job. I don't know what your hobbies are. I don't know the things that really have the affection of your life. But I want to tell you something. Uh, if, you're, if you're focused on something other than the people that God has placed you in responsibility of, listen, you're not a king, you're a husband. You're not a king, you're a dad. You're not a king, you're a pastor. We need to get rid of our royalty complexes and start taking care of the things that God has given uh, us to do and it's very, very important that we do that. We have to have the right perspective. Number three, he regretted not spending more time with his family. David, David the king was an iconic figure, a legend in his own time. But David the father was absent without leave. God says he visits the fatherless and the widows. There are many houses who have men living in them that are nonetheless fatherless and widows. And by the way, you don't get to grade your own report card. Sorry. It's not what you grade yourself. It's how those that love you and call you dad and call you mom grade you. That's what, or husband, that's, that's, that's what, uh, that's where it all really comes in. And so it's so important. You know, the generation before me, uh, Brother uh, Chadwick, the generation before me, this was their motto. and, And I've had this literally said to me, give them quantity of time. Uh, quality of time, not quantity of time. Give them, give them quality, not quantity. Did you know that you cannot schedule quality? That's right. You bump into quality as you walk through quantity. Right. You don't know when your boy's going to hit the home run. You don't know when he's going to shoot the winning basket. 
You don't know when, you, when, when your daughter is, is going to have a piano recital or whatever it is that just, that just shakes the place. You, you bump into those times as you travel through life and you give yourself to your family, then you, then you, have, you have the quality that, that is hidden in the quantity that's out there. Go, go to a restaurant and sit down and say, I want a, my favorite steak, I get it from my dad's T-bone steak. Uh, I want a T-bone steak. Okay, I'm sitting at the table. They come out with a huge platter, and in the middle of it is a little slice about this big. And I'm staring at, no, I said 16 ounce. And that's really small for a T-bone. But anyhow, no, I said 16 ounce T-bone is what I ordered. Sir, we don't focus on, we don't focus on uh, the, the uh, quantity here. It's not the size, it's the flavor. And I promise you, when you eat that, it's going to be the best slice of T-bone steak you've ever eaten in your life. No, 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 no. Go get me the 16 ounces that are left, okay, of the quantity. I want the quantity. So, so you, can't, you, you can't do that. I remember the story of John Rice a great preacher, many of you know, that, that a guy called him and wanted to see him, and he said, okay, I can't meet with you tomorrow. I've got an appointment. I'll meet with you on, on Friday. And so he goes by the guy's, the guy goes by his house on the day that, that he couldn't meet with him, and he's playing with his kids out in the yard. So the next day he comes in for his appointment. He said, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to stay long. I just wanted to come and give you a piece of my mind because you were dishonest with me. He said, what are you talking about? He said, you told me you couldn't meet with me yesterday because you had an appointment. I went out and saw you playing with your kids in the yard. And John Rice said to him, sir, playing with my kids in the yard was my appointment. It was my appointment. And we have to, we have to get down to where we prioritize our life and get our life in order and get the things where they should to be. John Updike said this. He said, we may live well, but we cannot ease the suspicion that we no longer live nobly. Addressing the University of Arkansas Law School, Vince Foster, many of you remember his name, said this. You have amply demonstrated that you are achievers willing to work hard, long hours to set aside your personal lives, but it reminds me of that old observation that no one was ever heard to say on their deathbed, I wish I had spent more time at the office. He said, balance wisely your professional and your family life. If you're fortunate enough to have children, your parents will warn you that they will be grown and gone before you know it. I can testify that is true. God only allows us so many opportunities with our children to read a story, go fishing, play catch, and say our prayers together. Try not to miss them out. The office can wait. It will be there when the children are gone. Six weeks after that address, Vince Foster was dead. I want to tell you, God's called us, God's called us to be spiritual examples. You know one of the problems in Absalom's life was he saw his dad and what his dad did. And it broke his father's heart. And I want to tell you something about your children. They don't require that you be perfect. They require that you be honest. And I want to just tell you right now, if you've never sat your kids down and said, I am sorry, will not, not apologize. Well, I apologize. No, no, no. No, that all, when you say I apologize, it requires no response. Poli- I, 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 okay, I apologize. No, no, that's, that's nothing. That's just a word. Sit them down as a man of integrity. Look your family in the face and say, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I've gone around the room. Son, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Will you? I've asked him, will you forgive me? I blew it. I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have responded that way. I shouldn't have acted that way. I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have argued with your mother about that. Will you forgive me? They're looking for honest transparency. People are leaving our homes and our churches in flocks and droves because we're somehow trying to live this stupid image that's not, it's not true. It's not real. That's not who we are. And our people are sitting out there thinking our families as pastors never have struggles, never have problems. Our kids all grow up, right? Just like he said, you know, we were, I I had a guy say to me one time, he said, yeah, but you're different. 
Why? Because you don't, you don't suffer, struggle with these things. What? Who ran over you? Are you kidding me? No. Born one day and say, hey, suddenly I am superhuman. No, that's not it at all. We have to be honest. And then I close, and that's simply this. He regretted waiting until it was too late. Oh, no, 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 no. Now, two years, his son, when Joab brought him back, David said this, get him out of here. By the way, that's what good Jewish fathers did. That's what the village expected when the prodigal son came home. They expected him to say, hit the trail. Yeah, you'll be a servant and you'll stay in the back quarters if I even hire you. Why did the father run to the son? Because he embraced the son in front of the village and walked him back home. So the village would say, "Ah, the father's with him. What can we say? If his dad takes him back, we, we can't reject him. By the way, if the father rejected him, he, he, he would have had no opportunity for employment or anything else because when the father rejects, you're rejected. But the father embraced him. Didn't leave him as he was. He put a robe on him, cleaned him up, killed the fatted calf, and celebrated. And the reality of the matter was the elder brother was further from the father than the kid in the hog pen. He stayed closer physically, but spiritually, spiritually and the story ends with him on the outside. But David, two years, two years of exile, and now he says, would God, I had died for thee. Years ago, I was at a camp in South Georgia. Man, it was a, out in the middle of nowhere. Georgia rain's pouring in. One night, lightning struck, hit a tree, it fell over, and caught fire and the rain put it out. Now you talk about an altar call. Son, we had it that night. We had a service that night. God's spirit worked. And a young girl came up on the platform and approached the man that directed the camp and camp director and said, uh, could I, I remember her saying, could I, could I give a word of testimony? And I remember, I remember thinking, <laughs> he talked I mean, you know, you call people from the back, but she's, come, she's up on the platform randomly. Nobody, he doesn't know her. I don't know her. And she says, can I give a word of testimony? And I thought, he's not going to let her do that. He's just going to pull her aside and pray with her. But, but he said, yeah. So she walked up to the podium, and she said to her peers, she said, my mother and I never got along. We fought and it's a bad relationship. It just bickered and fought all the time. It was constant. My dad had left us, and it was just me and mom, and it just went, it just went bad. I'd yell at her. She'd get mad and frustrated at me, and the more frustrated she got, the more angry I got, and it, we just had we just had times of intense conflict. She said not long ago. She said I. Um, was at home. Mom was on me about something else she wanted me to do or didn't want me to do. And she said, she's just chewing on my ear a little bit. She said, I'm just sick of it. Just sick of it. She said, I looked her in the face and I said, I want you to know one thing. She said, I, I, I screamed it as loud as I could. I said, I want you to know that I hate you. I hate you. I turned around, went to the garage, got in the car and shut the door. She said a few moments later, my mother came out. I could tell she had been sobbing. Her eyes were welted, and I could tell that what I'd said to her had really hurt her. But I had too much pride to apologize. She said we opened the garage door and backed out. She drove me the two miles to school and dropped me off. She said as we pulled into the little circle there, I looked out and I saw my friend standing there. They were watching because they knew there was conflict. And she said, I, I, wanted, I wanted to just make one more statement. And she said, rather than saying anything to mom, she said, I just turned, got out of the car. And with my hand, she said, I slammed the door as hard as I could so that everybody could hear it. And I stormed over to them. They surrounded me. Oh, did you have another fight? What's your mom, what's your mom want you to do now? What's, what's, your, what's your mom saying to you now? And she said, my mom pulled out slowly and drove away. We went to classes. Two periods in, there's a small break where you get to go out on the playground and just 
get some fresh air and she said we were out there with my friends and all of a sudden that that sound that always makes everything go quiet there was an ambulance that came rushing by we all stopped talking just watched it as it speed past and went off into the distance started talking again finally the bell rang we had to go to class she said I'm in class the door opens and there's the school counselor whispers to the teacher the teacher comes and whispers to me they need to see you in the office she said I got up and went to the office and as I entered the office she said there's a little side room there that's used for specific counsels and things that uh, that can't be set out and so we went into that and there was the principal there was another school counselor and there was a Georgia State patrolman I didn't know what was going on I sat down nervous shaking and the Georgia State Patrolman said to me, I'm sorry to tell you that a friend went over to see your mother and there was no response. She went inside and found your mother dead on the tile floor of your kitchen. I've never heard a child weep so deeply as that girl wept. She stopped and it was though this guttural sobbing emanated from her. And she said this, it's too late for me. I want to tell my mama that I didn't hate her and that I love her with all my fiber, but now it's too late. But it's not for you, she said. Go home and love your mom. I want to tell you something. That, that was one of the most sobering invitations that reopened again that I've ever seen. Kids at an altar sobbing, making phone calls out on the camp, calling their parents. Now, I don't know where you are in your relationship, but can I tell you this? If you've got breath, there's hope. Preacher, it's pretty bad. It's, no, there's, no, there's hope. There's hope. Why? Because there's a God of mercy. There's a God of grace. There's a God, listen, there's a God that, can God, can God uh, furnish a table in the wilderness, Psalm 78? Oh, God can. Take same words, flip them. Can God? Flip them. God can. It's however you want to approach this situation. I want to tell you something. There, there is still hope for you. There's still hope for your relationship. Listen to me. Trust me. There's still hope for your son. There's still hope for your daughter. There's still hope for your relationship with them. And I, again, I'm being transparent with you. I've had, I've had some struggles with guys that I've trained up. My, my, uh, my own sons where there were things that broke my heart. And, and I'm, trying to, I'm trying to... Can I be real honest with you? Part of the struggle was between Dean the pastor and Dean the dad. Do I care what everybody else thinks about me? People that counsel me for... Family conferences? Am I angry about that? That I lost a family conference because you, you messed up and people knew about it. No, 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 no. Or is it Dean the dad that's going to run in front of the village and put his arm around his boy and say, welcome home? There's still hope, guys. Still hope. Let's